Is this thing still on? I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking? Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And my name is Sarah Fung. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes. If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis. This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you. Hi, and welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to the Gritty Nurse podcast. We have a really important discussion. I think we've had this discussion before, but we have to continue talking about it only because we continue seeing it. And there's actually been some evidence to suggest that, you know, workplace violence towards healthcare workers is only on the rise. We have to sound the alarm bells. Like just last week, we had a healthcare worker, a physician come out talking about vaccines, different things, and her being publicly attacked and people talking about, you know, chopping her up and putting her in a box. Like this stuff is completely unacceptable. We had recently also a pharmacist who was brutally attacked for giving COVID-19 vaccines. Like where do people think that they can get off by punching, attacking a healthcare worker? But the thing is, it continues to happen with no recourse. So hopefully today we can talk about some solutions, talk about some ways that we can see some change because this is a very, very disturbing trend. So before we get started, I'll hand over to Sarah to introduce our guest for today. I am so excited to have a guest today who is willing to share her experience. I know it's something that's very difficult for us to talk about, but we on the Greater Nurse Podcast are storytellers, and through stories, we can bring these experiences to light. So I would love to introduce Risa E. Lewis, MD. She is a professor of emergency medicine and radiology at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. She directs the point-of-care ultrasound section. She publishes and speaks on equity, health design, point of ultrasound, medical education, global health, and navigating the workplace, including leadership and mentorship. Risa has led point-of-care ultrasound education courses regionally, nationally, and internationally. She publishes, speaks, and is committed to creating a safe, equitable, and dignified work environment in healthcare. She is the creator and host of the Visible Voices podcast, covering topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Her work has been published in Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Slate, among others. You can learn more at racetelewis.com and follow her on Twitter at racetelewis. This is great. I'm so glad to have you on today. Welcome to the Greater Nurse Podcast. It's a huge honor to be on the podcast. 
we are just so inspired by all of the work you do. It's nice to have a fellow advocate, a fellow healthcare advocate, someone who also has a podcast. And, you know, it's really great that you are continuing to champion the change that we'd like to see. I'm just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about yourself and the work that you do in emergency medicine. Well, again, thank you so much for the invitation to join. And please know that your podcast inspired me to move forward with my podcast. I've been listening to your episodes. And in fact, you were nice enough to join me for an episode. And um, so thank you for this invitation to join you. So I grew up in the USA and I did the four years of college, four years of med school, uh, four years of residency training in emergency medicine. There was one year off uh, when I did research and confirmed that I was not going to be a, a ben benchtop researcher, and also that was a great experience. So I've been practicing as a board-certified emergency physician since 2001, 2002. I did a one-year fellowship in ultrasound. Some people call it point-of-care ultrasound. Some people call it bedside ultrasound. Some people call it emergency ultrasound, clinical ultrasound. It's the same concept, uh, no matter what term you use, of using ultrasound to make better diagnostic decisions, safer, better procedures, and overall stay patient-focused, which is what we all are at the end of the day. That's amazing. I really love hearing that journey that you went through because all of us have a different journey to where we got to. And I think um, sometimes it's a winding road. Sometimes it's a straight path. It's always interesting to hear about what others do and you know, the work that you do inspires others too. So it's great to hear that we inspired you because we're, I mean, it goes both ways. We were so honored to be on your podcast and to hear some of the stories and experiences that you had. Um, I just think that podcasting and it's, it's a great medium. It's a great way to connect with others. And hopefully we can continue to use that to spread our message on a wider scale. I want to congratulate both of you on the award and awards your podcast has received. Um, and also just the, you know, the name of my podcast is The Visible Voices, the goal being to amplify voices that may or may not be known, may or may not be heard. And uh, you're doing that. And so I was glad to have you on as guests. No, thank you. We were we were honored to be a part of that. And I think that, you know, that really segues into some of the work and some of the things that yourself and ourselves, we've been doing as well in terms of advocating and advocating, you know, specifically for this topic, just against workplace violence. One of the things I noted that prior to the pandemic onset, nearly 75% of, you know, 25,000 annually reported workplace assaults occurred in healthcare settings. That's a huge staggering number. And there's like this estimate where they said shockingly only about 30% of nurses or and 26% of physicians are actually reporting these incidences of violence, which there's a clear impression here where we're seeing that there is underreporting. And, you know, you've been in the emergency department, I had the opportunity to work in the emergency department and quality improvement. And one of the things that I'd see from like a reporting standpoint is, you know, lots and lots and lots of code whites. And the emergency department can be a really cha challenging place to work. I'm sure you can you have stories and testimonies of how how difficult it can be and how difficult it has been even after the pandemic. 
And, you know, we've spoken about many instances of workplace violence and its pervasiveness in healthcare. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit about why and how you became so passionate about this topic as well? Yeah. I mean, full disclosure, this has not been my main focus of research or even publications. It's been a little bit on ultrasound, but I guess the overlap is definitely I've taken more of an intentional interest on equity and equity in the workplace. So that's, you know, a big tie-in. And it was an episode that you had that inspired me that I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this episode. And we contacted Gina at Boston Medical Center, you know, who has published from a public health perspective, this concept of violence as a public health epidemic. And I think only in preparing for that episode did I learn, you think you're having these isolated events. You think you're the only one experiencing, witnessing directly or indirectly these events. And then you start talking to people or, you know, you look at the data and the data supports it. I think one of the things is, you know, as, as clinicians, specifically as physicians, we're taught, we're professional you take the high road, you um, don't counter transfer, you know, there's this culture of I'm tough and I can take it. And so there are reasons when people are like, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you complain? Why didn't you report it? And there's a little bit of, well, you know, we, we, we get a little bit of mixed messaging. I think there is much more awareness and much more training about this now. But when I was in training, I don't think I ever had training on this. I I got training on how to restrain a patient, like how to physically restrain a patient. We got training on meds, how to chemically restrain a patient. But I don't recall until now later with ongoing education that there was training on, you know, what to do if you're attacked uh, verbally, physically. And there's this, I think in the emergency department, there's, you just take part of what comes with the built environment and the patients because we take care of everybody and we can pivot quite quickly. Initially you think, well, this is part of what I signed up for. That is actually one of the things I want to challenge, right? I think when we think about our, our workplace and our environments that we need to be consciously thinking about this differently, that, you know, we we aren't set up to be in a workplace or an environment where we are taking physical or verbal assault. But the thing is, you're right. It's it's almost baked into the cake. When I when I think about our nursing education, it's the same. We didn't really receive much training on like how we interact with somebody if if they're verbally assaulting us or if they're starting to be aggressive. You know, I think it's really when you're you become a nurse and a hospital might hire you and say, okay, you know, we're going to teach you gentle persuasion approach. Well, that's not going to work on someone <laughs> on all all people. And I think that you know we are we have this assumption that we just have to take it. And I've read so many so many incidences where literally like the nurse the physician will just kind of curl up in a ball and just like take this attack actually and just do nothing. And that is really disturbing to me. And the other piece that's disturbing to me is the ratio in which that, you know, specifically, like I said at the top of the episode, that majority it does happen to nurses. Nursing is um, 90 plus percent female dominated. And then again, when I take away and looking at some of the incidents I've seen over the years, again, with female physicians as well. So this this violence is gender based violence. But for whatever reason, we don't call it that at our workplaces. We don't say it's gender-based violence. We There's almost like no recourse. And it's kind of like, again, like you said, it's a part of the job, but it really, really isn't. And I think that in any circumstance, let's say if you worked in finance, right? And somebody walked up and assaulted you, that's assault. That person's going to be charged. They're dealt with in that way. In healthcare, 
why is it that, you know, we can take a punch to the face and it's just like, oh, you know, we put an IRS in and it's all in a day's work. That's it's that sounds crazy, but that is what happens nine times out of 10. Absolutely. And Raisa, I'm glad that you brought up the verbal um, abuse as well, because when we think about violence in the workplace, we're often thinking about the physical abuse, but verbal abuse can be much more pervasive and wear you down emotionally over time. I'm just wondering if you can give our listeners some examples of violent incidences you've seen in the workplace, like like recently. Have you seen anything? It's a great question. Um, I first want to you know, dovetail off what Amy shared, and I think it's important to call out the compounding effect of intersectionality. So yes, it's gender-based. It's also gender plus race-based. And you know, the more marginalized group to which you identify, the more at risk, the higher the numbers for uh, violence in the workplace. And I mean, I can just say that when I first started, um, when I was completed training early faculty. I had an experience where out of nowhere, I was examining a patient and the patient grabbed my head of hair and basically pulled out a large patch of that hair. And this was a patient that actually we had been warned potentially acted out. And so there was a security person in the room with me and guard was down. There was no expectation that the patient was going to do that, and then the patient did. As soon as this happened, the guard had the patient release his hand from my head, and there was a, a clump of hair um, that was in the hand that was no longer in my head. You know, I kind of went about my shift. I think I was maybe only a third into my shift when it happened. Everybody knew about it. Everybody talked about it. And the next day, you know, the chair of the department did come and, and check on me, um, but there was no report. There was no report filed. And I'll say quite honestly, I didn't know that I was supposed to or that I could. And, you know, this patient was known to have certain disabilities and sort of, yeah. So in the climate and in with the intention of being patient-centered, you know, there was a sense like the patient wasn't completely responsible for this. So, you know, it's sort of, again, part of what comes with the workplace. And But I, I've shared with the both of you that after that, I would sort of relive that sense that a patient was going to grab my head or grab my hair for years, years. And again, I just always thought, okay, that's just part of the work. Different cities are a little less or more aggressive verbally and physically. I worked for 12 years in New York City, and I definitely saw and experienced the most there. Although you asked about something recent. I had an experience just a few weeks ago that I was like, huh, this reminds me of New York City. And I'm in love with New York City. I love New York City, so it's not a New York City thing. But I think, you know, there's all sorts of predisposing circumstances that can lead to workplace violence in terms of people, patients being frustrated, you know, very frustrated. Now, I'm not endorsing or condoning that their frustration should be taken out on us. However, like, here's the thing. Like, we went into this for a reason, and we even understand their frustration. So I actually think that makes us have a higher threshold to report it, higher threshold to think, oh, that was that was violence um, when it is. So examples, I was called, I was told that I was lying to a patient. I was told I was called an a-hole. I mean, it, it goes across racial, ethnic. Um, someone looked at me and looked at my name and said, uh, this was not recent, this was... <laughs> Um, during the, the pandemic, someone was refusing to wear a mask, and it, this was pre-vaccination, and the patient didn't like what I was asking, the questions I was posing, and said, 
what are you, a Jew? <laughs> and I was like, huh, I haven't had that one in a while. And gosh, when um, my non-medical friends hear these stories, they, they're like, I, ca I can't believe that. I can't believe that. And I, you know, I say sometimes, I'm like, I get yelled at all the time. They're like, you do? I'm like, all the time all the time. Every time I hear it, it still makes me shudder because that still is very serious. And I can only imagine how frightening that would be because, you know, I, I can't say that I have had, I have instances where I've had patients yell at me and swear at me, but I've never had that physical interaction like you had. And I, I couldn't imagine how difficult that would be. And I, I, of course, how would we not or how would you not have PTSD or, you know, feeling like that would continue to happen? So again, like, I mean, this is where folks, if you're listening in organizations, like where are where, what supports should be put in place? Like, did any did, did you have a debrief after that? Did they reach out with to you with like a, you know, an employee assistance program? Like, did they say that there's anything that can be done? But it sounded to me like you just like like you said, everybody knew about it. They just went around about their day like it's a part of the business, but it's it's really it really shouldn't be. And it's just we have to continue to talk about it and to to call it out because at the end of the day, I mean, we've heard of those instances. We've heard of those instances where, you know, just just this just within uh, I think it was June 2022. I read a report saying that there was like five large incidences in the U.S. that were being were under investigation because there was like a stabbing, there was a shooting of doctors in the ER. Like, this is insane. Like, we should not be in a place where one we see it as acceptable, and two we have no way of of coupling and dealing with. It. If if it was anywhere else, we would know of all the different policies that they put in place to say, here's how we're going to prevent this. Here's how we're going to keep our workers safe. But for whatever reason, in healthcare, it's just it's like it's actually almost taboo. And I think the other piece is because there's that fear around the patient element, like you like you mentioned. You know, maybe this patient has dementia, or you know, maybe this patient has another mental illness, or whatever the case may be. And again, I don't want to demonize folks who have mental health disorders because I understand that complexity therein as well. But we also have to make sure that we, you know, one, we're, uh, we're equipping our workers with better ways of identifying, de-escalating, seeing these situations preemptively, making sure we have the right people at the right time in the right space if this is going to occur. And then, like, you know, is are there things from a legal standpoint? Are there things from, like, a physical standpoint? Because, again, like, I mean, I think I mentioned in the episode with you that I had started doing jujitsu. And it was actually, for me, I was just like, okay, not only is it trained to keep myself safe but it's also trained to keep my someone else safe if they were to come into a physical altercation with me because I think the other piece is we do see patients getting hurt too right that, like I mean there's the one side of you know we see horrible things happening with healthcare workers but there are also horrible things that happen with patients as well and there's got to be some type of a balance where it's like okay you know we we're coupling safety of the worker we're coupling safety of the patient for those instances where, you know, you know, maybe mental health is, is a part of it or dementia or these other, other dimensions. We just have to think about one, we know it's a problem, but what exactly is being done about it? So like in your own experience, do you know of any things that's happening in the U.S. that's happening that, that they're actually doing concretely to protect um, yourself, myself, nurses, physicians against um, patient violence? Thanks for that question. And I just want to make sure it's clear for the audience that that physical assault happened right at the beginning of my career. So now it's almost two decades ago. I'm not minimizing it or explaining it, but just 
I'm much better equipped now than I was then for what to do when something like that happens. And thanks to our episode and thanks to Gina, she really served to educate me a lot and uh, had me go back and see what I am, have at my institution as well as other institutions. I do think this is now a common topic at emergency medicine conferences and meetings. Uh, every hospital now has like a task force for healthcare worker safety. And I think there are departments, environments that are known to be higher risk or, you know, more incidents are reported. So the attention is often in the emergency department. And what I found is every place I've worked, there's always security you know, sort of a team of security guards. Depending on, you know, the environment, I remember one of the first times I ever saw um, metal detectors, and that was, I was um, in Los Angeles, and I was walking through a hospital getting into the emergency department, and I sit, and I think increasingly we're seeing metal detectors or conveyor belts where you have to put your bag on the belt. It's not, I think, 100% of emergency departments, but it's increasingly common. I think nurses, like I so value my nurse teammates and charge nurses and nurse educators are usually the ones I think that are providing most of the information. If you go into the break room or the cafeteria where people eat, there are often educational posters. I've seen them posted also uh, in the bathrooms um, as a means of educating and getting the messages out to all workers. And I think, you know, nursing has been much more organized about this. It is, you know, I would have to look at the emergency department curricular, like resident curriculum about if it's part of training. Safety is definitely a piece of the training. So I think it is part of the training now. Uh, but I, had to, I haven't looked at an updated curriculum for emergency medicine training. That's great. I think we did an episode actually with two authors that wrote a book called Code White. So it really talked a lot about violence in the healthcare system in Canada. And they interviewed a large number of nurses. And some of the stories really stuck out with me where a lot of times um, healthcare workers were expected to go care for the same patient that had just attacked them because they really have no support and everywhere is so short staffed. So not only did they have to go back and look after their attacker, a lot of times they were blamed for the violence that was inflicted upon them as if they had done something wrong and that they needed to think about their own behavior versus trying to fix the actual root of the problem. And that's so damaging, I think, because the majority of violent incidences, I don't have stats, but they're not reported. And so the ones we do hear about are the ones that are, I think, really bad. And I think a lot of times they're not reported because we feel like nothing is going to be done about it. And it's just reporting for the sake of reporting. And like you said, it almost seems like you can't handle it. And so you're somewhat less of a nurse or less of a doctor because this happened to you. Thankfully, I have increasingly had my emergency medicine trainees come to me when they're not feeling safe or something's happened. I've had residents report to me, you know, and, and, or I've had them say, I'm not comfortable taking care of this patient, you know, and it's, and they'll explain why, but they don't even necessarily need to explain why. If they say that, it's honored, it's respected, and and we pivot, we adjust. Very similar to some patients only want a woman to take care of them, or some patients only want a man to take care of them. And that's not necessarily the focus of today's talk, but I think there's much more awareness, much more sensitivity. And to the point that you two are bringing up, I think there's more comfort for the healthcare clinician to bring it up real time. Yeah, no, I think that's hugely important. 
And the, the other piece that I like to kind of always build into these these episodes is talking about proposed solutions at, you know, the federal level, pro, well, provincial level here, or, you know, national level. But what I did find out was there was a, a push and there still is a push for proposed solutions. And I guess it was in November of 2019, the U.S. House of Representatives introduced and passed the Workplace Violence Prevention Act for Healthcare and Social Service Workers Act, so H.R. 1309. And then if it does become law, it would require the Department of Labor to create an occupational safety and health standard requiring certain healthcare employees to develop and implement a comprehensive plan for protecting healthcare workers, social workers, and other personnel that might encounter any forms of workplace violence. And again, it would be looking at four specific things. So addressing uh, violence in social services and home care sectors, promptly investigating workplace violence incidents, hazards, and risks, providing sufficient trainers to workers who could be exposed to violent situations. Oh, sorry, there's actually five. Maintaining appropriate documentation and records of workplace violence and incidents and prohibit discrimination and retaliation against workers who report incidents or concerns of violence. So again, I think this is what I say to all of our guests. Like this is where that that intersection of health and policy is hugely important. So know the people that you're voting for, know what they stand for. Are they talking about preventing healthcare violence? Are they talking about these things, you know, at the Senate level? These are the people you want to push for to say, hey, we want this change and to continue to hold our politicians accountable. Like we can't just have them walking around just um, doing whatever they want. And we need to be a part of that solution too. So please, please get out there. Find out what your House of Representatives, find out what your Senates or senators are saying, find out what your, you know, politicians are saying and ask them about, you know, this specific Healthcare Workers Act, because, you know, this is one way that we might see some change within the, within, you know, our organizations, our hospital walls, home care, et cetera. I think, Amy, that's really important because when we think about other professions that are attacked, let's say police officers, and I don't have anything against police officers, but there is so much more attention given when uh, a police officer is killed on the job or harmed. And I don't know what the states are, what the stats are in the states, but here in Canada, uh, nurses experience higher rates of violence than police officers. And part of that, I feel like, is the, the gender issue that you mentioned. But also, we literally have no tools to defend ourselves. We don't have we don't have bulletproof vests. We don't carry guns. We don't receive any training. The only thing that I was taught earlier in my career was that you call a code white when there's a violent incident. So you go to the telephone if you can get to it and you dial a number and there's a code white announced overhead and supposedly someone is to come to your aid. But we know that we're not in a perfect system and that often doesn't happen, doesn't happen fast enough. So I think it's really uh, important that we continue to raise awareness and I think Amy, myself, you, we take every opportunity we can just to raise awareness with the public that this is an issue. This is something that I know during the pandemic has um, gotten worse because wait times are higher and there's just not that same level of compassion for each other. And I hope that this does change because we really need it to change, not just for our sake, but for patients. I can only imagine that some patients or families have gotten, they've gotten hurt in the, in the crossfire, so to speak. And it's just something that we need to continue to talk about. Amy or uh, Raisa, did you have any other things that you wanted to touch upon? I was going to say that something analogous during the pandemic, you know, we heard about rising rates of domestic violence and domestic assaults, substance abuse, um, people's uh, mental health illnesses getting exacerbated either because of, you know, having to be in one place socially isolated or, you know, 
having to stay home in one environment and or lack of access to medications that would have kept them feeling more stable. So I think it's not exactly the same, but like it's not surprising that workplace violence increased during the pandemic, um, similar to outside of the workplace. There's a disturbing trend where we're still like it is continuing to rise and the interactions between healthcare workers and patients are becoming increasingly more abusive. And we, we have to tackle it. We have to have these conversations. They may feel uncomfortable. Folks don't want to, you know, I think sometimes people just feel that nothing will be done, right? And again, this is why we continue to have these conversations and then we have to push for that accountability. I think, you know, I, I think about even some new nursing students that I've been speaking to and mentoring that say to me, well, what do I do in this situation? Like, how, how do I get the support? And I think I think at the end of the day, one, we it's important to report it. I think that um, making the reporting system as easy as possible is another thing because I've seen some very cumbersome um, internal reporting systems that make it that people are feel deterred to report. And then also we do have to set people up for success. We need to train them to be able to identify when situations are escalating or, you know, um, how to not just using gentle persuasion approach is not going to work for everybody. Find other training modalities that will help support and help, you know, protect the individual. And then also having those other things in place. Like it was, it was kind of interesting that you had mentioned that, you know, there are conveyor belts and various different things. I just recently heard at a hospital that I was working at that they're starting to get wands. So, you know, the, the same kind of wands that they use at the airport, that they're using those types of things and, you know, drills, that's also really important. I've seen um, code silver drill. So like an active shooter drill, it's, sad in these days that we have to say that you know we have to train our people to protect themselves against active shooters it's something that's a part of the unfortunately a part of something our reality so you know simulation is hugely important as again as well and then just you know pushing for change whether it's through policy through advocacy through having conversations like the ones we're having today with a podcast I again I think all those different things are important so before without further ado if there's anything else that you'd like to add please let us know um is is there anything else that you'd like to add there is um I actually want to say my current workplace has something that's fantastic that I haven't seen in prior. And I think it has to do with the evolution of the EHR, the electronic health record. You know, the emergency department is a place that we have uh, repeat visitors, uh, repeat patients. Some people come um, daily. Some people come twice daily. Some people just, you know, it's, it's sort of the place to come for care because of lack of access to primary care. Many people come to the emergency department because they can't see their physicians or their specialists in a timely manner. That's all to say that when patients become known to the emergency department as abusive, there is an immediate flag that pops up in the EHR that is placed when um, that there's an established record or incident. And so there is a warning to the clinician as soon as you log in. And I think that's a really positive intervention that I've seen. Yeah, I think that that, that should be probably a standard. I think that, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that there are some hospital systems that are lagging behind. I'll say this gently, lagging behind and updating their EMRs. So that flagging system isn't, you know, maybe it's paper. They're still like, I, I know a lot of EDs are still really heavily paper based. And I mean, um, sometimes things get lost and sometimes all those reports aren't read and things are missed. So I think that's a hugely important solution that, you know, upgrade your EMR systems and make sure that there are, there is a flagging system. Maybe there's a screen in the ED that says, okay, here are the patients that we have. 
And, you know, this one has a flag for, you know, violent type of uh, behavior. So I think that's that's a really great solution. Yeah, I think this just speaks to the role of technology in healthcare too, right? Because this is something that is actually really simple to implement. It doesn't require necessarily more time. It just requires a system that can recognize that the patients had a history of violence. And I think this just speaks to a bigger issue too of having better mental health supports because um, not too long ago, someone that I know was in a mental health crisis and they came to me asking, well, where can I go? It's the weekend. And I said, you know what, I don't know of anywhere really except for emergency. And I know this sounds bad, but where else can you get help right away? Because there's just such a lack of support out here that sometimes that is the only place you can go. And if there were better mental health supports, it could really eliminate a lot of these violent interactions. You know, it is a, it's a source of pride. Like we do, we want to take care of everybody and we want to be the place that people come for sure. And I think what you two are highlighting with this episode and bringing me on to talk about this is like, but we have to take care of ourselves, not just two, but perhaps first, meaning we have to make sure there's that safety, psychological safety, physical safety, emotional safety first, because then we're best able to take care of patients and be patient-centered. I couldn't have said that any better. And I think that is hugely important. I think that's also where we see nurses and other folks leaving healthcare because they don't feel that support. They don't feel that they're protected in their work. And again, yeah, it is about self-care. I think that we do a really bad job of taking care of ourselves. We're great with patients and families, but when it comes to making sure that we, like you said, we have psychological safety, we have physical safety, we don't do a very good job there and organizations don't do a really good job. So I think we also have to put some accountability back onto them to making sure that they're ensuring we are safe too. So with saying that, thank you so much, Riza, for coming on to the Greeners podcast. And before we we leave this episode, please tell us a little bit about the Visible Voices and where people can find you. Okay. So I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I have a website, RisaELewis.com or RisaLewis.com, two S's on Lewis. Um, I also have a podcast website called TheVisibleVoicesPodcast.com. The podcast really came out of a few things. Number one, I started noticing throughout all of my medical career that certain people and certain voices were always the ones that you heard and saw. They were always tapped to be the subject matter experts. Speaking generally, you know, like cis hetero white men. And um, yes, like I want diverse workplaces, but diverse workplaces means diverse voices and diverse people that we see on television, on a podcast as well. And years ago, I was encouraging people in the emergency ultrasound community to start podcasts, to be medical educators, because all the podcasts I saw were men. Yes. Friends who would invite me on, but I'm like, well, okay, why aren't women like creating and hosting? And then maybe I was talking to myself, like, Risa, why don't you become a creator and host? So thanks to the supports of friends, and I'm going to name a few, like Andy Little, Slim Rizé, uh, Vic Brazel, um, the Gritty Nurses. Like, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this. I, I got my start with podcasting with Feminine, Women in Emergency Medicine, and I would pitch like, a series, like a series on women that were emergency physicians, but then use that as a springboard for something else. Or I was attending the African Federation of Emergency Medicine in Kigali, and I pitched, you know, can I interview women that are helping to develop the specialty in Africa, different countries? Yes. Yeah. So I really got into it. And I had enough of my sort of people say, you know, Risa, 
you can do this. You can do your own thing. So it took a while to come to the title and to come to the topics. And, you know, the title of Visible Voices, I've just explained, like, I really want to amplify people, people that are good people doing good things. Of course, it's, you know, Reese's lens, but Risa talks about recent third person sometimes, but uh, <laughs> no, but really like amplifying people that are maybe not who you typically hear, maybe not who you typically see, or maybe it is who you typically hear and typically see. That's fine. But the topics that interest me most are healthcare, equity, and current trends. And the current trends, I tell people it's so that I can do recent things like documentary films or books or things like that, because I actually, I don't think these are discrete siloed topics. There's so much uh, Venn diagram overlaps, such as what we talked about today, healthcare and equity. Uh, and actually, now that I think about it, current trends. So like we hit all three buckets today. Amazing. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the Greeners podcast. It has been such a huge pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. 